0: As we continue to make our way through this book, I know it's been months, hopefully you were blessed by the short Beatitude series. It was a great series to go through together and learn clearly how to think about law and gospel. And we're right back into Revelation, which I think it will help us in so much. Revelation 14, and we will only take on five verses tonight, so just a quick taste of Revelation tonight before we get into the next couple weeks. Revelation 14, 1-5. through five. Let me just remind you before we read this, this is the Word of our Lord. So let's attend to it as such. Revelation 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with them 144,000 who had His name and His Father's name written on their foreheads. And I heard a voice from heaven Like the roar of many waters. Like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb. In their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Let's pray. Father, Son, and holy spirit our great and glorious triune god lord we come to you as our souls thirst for you our bodies long for you in a dry and weary land where there is no water lord as we come to worship you tonight pray that you would feed us with your truth lord sustain our faith help us Long for the return of Jesus like we have never had before. And I pray, Father, that we would be eager to suffer in a way that would glorify You. To show Your greatness to the lost and dying world around us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, one of my new, maybe I should say newer, Christian heroes in my life is a man named Samuel Rutherford. Does anybody know who Samuel Rutherford is? few hands. Okay, that's what I thought. He's not really a hero to a lot of people in our generation, although he is kind of a hero to many of our heroes, I think. His writing is incredible. Spurgeon, who I love, loved Rutherford. Spurgeon actually said that his letters were the nearest thing to inspiration, which can be found in all the writings of mere men. That's saying a lot, coming from Spurgeon, right, if you've listened to Spurgeon before. And I think he's right. Rutherford was an amazing writer, an amazing pastor, Especially when you consider who he was and what he went through. So I want to give you a little background on who he is. He was a pastor, became a pastor in his early 20s in a small Scottish community in the 1600s. And from the beginning, he was just this ministry machine. It was said that he would wake up at four in the morning and he was always preaching, always praying, always visiting the sick, always catechizing, and always writing and studying. And he did this faithfully for years, but then in his early 30s, he started to really get some struggles that affected the rest of his life. When he was 32, only five years in the marriage, he lost his entire family from an illness. Illness wiped out his wife first and then his two kids. He nearly died himself, but he faithfully shepherded his church and many of his own church actually died of this sickness as well. And just a few years later, to top it all off, when he was 36, he was kicked out of his own church for calling out the heresies of his day. And it was a state church at that point, so he was kicked out of his town. He couldn't even minister anywhere in Scotland. And so for years he wrote these letters to minister to his flock from a distance. And that's the letters that Spurgeon was referring to. Eventually he did come back into ministry, and he served for 23 more years faithfully in Scotland than in England. And he was one of the men that you guys might know served on the committee that wrote the Westminster Shorter Catechism. We know it as the one that begins, what's the chief end of man, right? That's probably the one you're most familiar with in that catechism. He was an incredible man. And he was actually condemned again at the end of his life for calling out the king, saying you're not as sovereign as God. And the only thing that kept him from the scaffold was that he died of natural causes before they could execute him. He was an incredible, faithful man. Now, I don't know if you think this way, but when I hear stories like that or read stories in Scripture or look throughout church history, I want to think and ask them, what made you tick? How were you able to be so faithful in the middle of so many trials and tribulation? What motivates you? What fueled your faithfulness? Now, for Rutherford, we actually know. At the end of his life, he wrote a poem that was later turned into a hymn called, The Sands of Time Are Sinking. It's a pretty famous hymn. I'm not sure if we've sung it around here. Maybe we can start doing it in one of these days. But let me just read you one of those stanzas because this stanza is based on our passage in Revelation. This is what motivated Rutherford to be faithful to the end. This vision of the heavens and the lambs. Let me just read you this verse. The king there in his beauty, without a veil is seen. It were a well-spent journey. Those seven deaths lay between the Lamb with His fair army doth on Mount Zion stand, and glory, glory dwelleth in Emmanuel's land. You see, what kept this man going and so many others is fixing their eyes on the Lamb and His fair army. Fixing their eyes on this finish line of faith when they will one day stand in glory with Jesus in victory. And this can motivate our faith as well. And so we need to attend to this passage in such a way to fuel our own faithfulness and fix our eyes on this finish line of faith. But before we get into the details of chapter 14, I want to review because, you know, it's been months, right, since we've been in Revelation. I'm sure if you're anything like me, that just kind of goes out of your mind in just a few days. So, Revelation is organized in a series of sevens. We've talked a lot about these, right? You started with the seven letters, then the seven seals, and then we had the seven trumpets. Now we're right in the middle of the seven visions section, and we'll get to the seven bowl judgments at the end. Now just to remind you, this is not a giant timeline, right? These judgments don't unfold in chronological order, like the bowls you know, come from the seals and, and so on. That's not how it works. These are seven repeated sets of visions really describing the same thing. It's repeated parallelism. They're describing the time from Christ's ministry to the end. We use the illustration from the beginning like holding up a diamond in the light and looking at it from various angles. That's what we have here. We have God's plan of salvation through judgment through each of these cycles. And we're right in the middle of one here in chapter 14. This vision cycle started in chapter 12. It goes all the way to chapter 15. And if you remember, it starts with three terrible visions. Three really troubling visions. Well, the first one in chapter 10, we meet Satan, this dragon. We get some good news is that he's a defeated foe. He was cast down from heaven by the ministry of Jesus Christ, but he's still waging war against the saints at the edge of the sea. You remember, he calls out two beasts in chapter 13. One of the beasts, the first one, comes from the sea. And this beast is, in the first ten verses of chapter 13, this beast is kind of the political tyrant. He seeks to oppress the church, to persecute the church with the power of the state and maybe even individual uh, politicians. He's trying to destroy the church really from the outside. And then the second beast comes from the land. From verses 11-18 to 18 in chapter 13. And that's this religious false prophet. He looks like the lamb, but he has the tongue of the dragon. He deceives. He twists the truth. Trying to destroy the church through deception. False teaching from the inside. And I'm so glad we get to chapter 14, because after three horrific visions of what Satan is doing to the church, we finally get three encouraging visions for the church that is suffering under that oppression. The first tonight is this vision of heaven. In the first five verses, then we actually get a vision of hell next week. I know you're thinking, hell encouraging? Next week, we'll talk about that. And then the last part is going to be the harvest. Harvest and final judgments as well. And these really are encouragements to the church because they show us God's people will be redeemed. And their enemies will be judged. The wickedness will not go unpunished. So our job tonight is to fix our eyes on this lamb and His fair army in verses 1-5. through So as we do that, I want to make sure you know that we are covering two sections. We're going to do the destiny of the redeemed, which is kind of where we're all headed. And then secondly, the character of the redeemed. That's in verses 4 and 5. Really, who we will be once we get to our destination. So first, verse 1, we'll see the destiny of the redeemed. Go to verse 1 with me, chapter 14. Then I looked... And behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb. Now there's such a great contrast here that we don't really notice because it's been so long since we've been in the last few chapters. But in chapter 12, as I said, the dragon has been cast down and now he's on unstable footing. He's on the sea, this unstable ground. He's a defeated foe. And he's trying to wage war against the church, but he's just making his last stand. He's weak. He's bleeding out, if you want to describe it that way. His time is is limited. And then he calls out this beast from the land, especially this false teacher, twisting the truth, trying to deceive the church to do whatever he can do to take out the saints. And then what do we see in the beginning of chapter 14? We see the true Lamb. The true Lamb of God. In contrast to the false Lamb in chapter 13. And this Lamb although he was slain for sin, is standing in victory. He's standing like he was in Revelation 5 when he received the scroll from the Ancient of Days. And where is he standing? On Mount Zion. The city of the living God. This heavenly Jerusalem that's from above, to use the language of Hebrews 12. This place where God will dwell with His people for all eternity in peace, in harmony, and safety. You see the contrast here? And the contrast here is to point to something else. This is a fulfillment of Psalm 2. I know we've talked about this a lot this summer, but Psalm 2 starts like this. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against His anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart, And cast their cords from us. And that's what Satan was doing. And all of his people were saying they're trying to dethrone God. And how does God respond? He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then He will speak to them in His wrath and terrify them in His fury. How will He do that? As for me, I have set my king on Zion. My holy hill. This is where history is headed. Satan will do his worst. He'll rage and fight to the end of his days. And they will do damage to the church. They will persecute the church. But in the end, God wins. His Son stands on Zion, eternally reigning over heaven and earth. And who will be there with Him? Look at the rest of verse 1. With Him... 144,000, who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Now I know there are probably a lot of questions about who these people are. And that's great. I explained did almost a whole sermon on this in Revelation 7. So I encourage you to go back and listen to that if you have more than I'll get to here. I just really want to review who are these 144,000. First of all, they're not some ethnic Israel group. They're not some group of like super holy Jews that ministered during the time of the tribulation. I know some of you probably heard that. I heard that growing up in a lot of ways. No, this 144,000, like all the numbers in Revelation, this number is symbolic. And this number is symbolic of the entire people of God. You have 12, representing the 12 tribes of Israel, God's old covenant people, and then 12 of the New Testament, the apostles, right? Now you have the people before Christ, the people after Christ, the old covenant, new covenant, all together multiplied by a thousand, which represents this great multitude, as it says in chapter 7, and that's how you get the 144,000. Didn't know you were going to have to do math tonight, right? That's the idea. It's this whole group. True Israel. As it says in verse 3 at the very end, redeemed from the earth. From the whole earth. And redeemed in verse 4 at the very end, from all of mankind. So this is true Israel. It's the church. It's all God's people. Jew and Gentile. Those who trust in Jesus. But if you remember in chapter 7, I also pointed something else out. The 144,000 aren't just the church meek and mild. 144,000 is a picture of a holy army. Because in chapter 7, the tribes were listed out in this very thematic order, very similar to what we'd see in the book of Numbers. And what happens in the book of Numbers? God is numbering his army because he's going to war in the promised land. Same thing here. God is numbering his army in Revelation, all of his people, and they're going to fight against Satan. And that's why in chapter 7, they were sealed, they were sealed with the Holy Spirit. And we see the same seal in these verses, right? The name of Christ and the name of His Father. We've received that name in baptism, haven't we? Baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And we're sealed by the Spirit because we belong to God. And God protects us when we're waging war against Satan and his beasts. Satan marks his own, by the way, too, doesn't he? With the mark of the beast. We talked about that last time in chapter 13. And we'll talk about it again next week. And so what does this show us in chapter 14 here? What is this group? This is the amazing part. It's not just the church militant. That's what we saw in chapter 7. This is the church triumphant. Just get a load of this for a second. God sealed 144,000 in chapter 7. And what do we find at the end of time? 144,000 remain. Stand by Jesus' side in Zion. He didn't lose 5% or 1%. Could you imagine a war where we lost 1% of our troops? We would see that as a huge victory, wouldn't we? That would be an amazing war. We're like, yes, this is great. He doesn't lose one saint. Not one. The complete number who was sealed is the complete number that was saved. Or in Paul's words, Romans 8, Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. He even put glorified in the past tense because it's that much of a done deal for God. Do you see the encouragement here for us as believers? For us that grow weary? Do you ever get to the place where you lose hope with your struggle with sin? You don't know how it's going to turn out? Or your struggle with illness? your struggle with persecution, you look at the world around you and you feel like the church is just in this losing battle. Your faith seems to be growing weaker. You're exposing the sin in your own life. So easy to lose hope. That's why we turn our eyes to this moment when we see that no matter how young we are, how old we are, how weak our faith might seem at a time or how strong it might seem at a time, if we are in Christ, this is our destiny. This is where we're headed. We will stand in glory with Jesus. God has promised Philippians Philippians 1.6, He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Christ Jesus. Or as I like to say oftentimes, the people that God saves will make it home one day safe and sound and looking just like Jesus. This is the promise that we hold on to when our faith is weak. And what will people do there? What will we do there when we are standing in glory? How will we respond? We will sing. We'll sing a new song. Look at verse 2 with me. Verse 2. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters, like the sound of thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. I don't know how you read that. That is not the sound I thought would go with thunder or water. I mean, just imagine for a second, Niagara Falls, or maybe Yosemite Falls. We're west coast, right? Yosemite Falls, roaring and raging, and you hear harps instead of that roar. Or thunder, like real thunder, not Bakersfield thunder, you know, Texas, Midwest, where it like shakes the ground kind of thunder, and it sounds beautiful, like songs coming from a beautiful choir. What in the world is going on? What is John doing here? Well, he's mixing metaphors once again. We've seen this a lot in Revelation, haven't we? He's mixing a couple of different metaphors to describe this heavenly choir, this heavenly voice. He's saying on the one hand, this is loud and, and almost terrifying and powerful. It's intimidating, like a battle cry, or maybe even a victory cry after an army has won an important battle. And then on the other hand, it's beautiful. It's filled with joy. And excitement. Harps are symbols of joy in Scripture. So much so that in Psalm 137 it says, they hung up their harps when they left the promised land in exile. Because that was the time for mourning. There was no more joy. So this is a picture of a joyful, loud cry a voice, a choir. What John is saying is this army is celebrating this victory with the loudest, most joyful song you could possibly imagine. And then take that song and multiply it by ten. And that's what John is saying here. Now, verse three describes what they're seeing. They were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. That's the vision we get in heaven from Revelation chapter five. No one could learn the song except the hundred and forty-four thousand who had been redeemed from the earth. Now, you might remember new songs. Scripture were those that commemorated some recent victory. We see that at the Red Sea when Pharaoh's army was wiped out. Moses leads the people in a new song of redemption. We see that in Revelation 5 when Jesus receives the scroll from the Ancient of Days and is going to open its seal. All of creation explodes in this new song of redemption. And now in Revelation 14 in this final step of redemption and recreation what do we see the lamb and his army have overcome do you remember the whole time in revelation what's been the command overcome persevere the one who sustains their faith the one who endures to the end you will receive the reward this is this moment and so what do they do they sing a new song a song of redemption an exclusive song you know that only the 144,000 will sing this And that's in the sense that, look, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. But it's the redeemed, it's the people of God that will sing of His redemption on into eternity. And let me just stop there for a second and encourage you, don't wait until eternity to start singing like this. Don't wait. We're commanded even right now from Scripture to sing praises to our God and to each other. To sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs to each other and to encourage one another. That doesn't matter if we feel bad or if we have a cold. We don't just sing when we have a really good voice. We are commanded to sing joyfully. And we're commanded to sing loudly. Look, not because loudness is the goal. Loudness and volume, that's not the only thing that glorifies the Lord. But the loudness is an expression that your heart is just filling up with joy. That's the mixing of these metaphors here. The joy is overflowing and you can't even help yourself. I love that hymn. You know the the song, Oh for a Thousand Tongues to Sing. I think every Christian should relate to that. Every Christian should get to a point where they're frustrated that they only have one mouth to praise God. Lord, if I only had more tongues, you deserve so much more praise than I can even utter with one mouth. That's the frustration he's talking about here. Our God is worthy of that. You know who's really good at this? Kids. And that's one of the reasons I love this service. Because I can hear all of you kids singing out loud, singing all the joys that's flowing from your heart, and I love it. I encourage you kids, keep doing it bump your parents. Tell them to join along and sing loud and joyfully. We should be rejoicing in our Lord together as one family in the Lord. Well, we've seen the destiny of the redeemed. Now let's look at the character of the redeemed in the last two verses here. Verse 4, who we will be. There are actually four characteristics here, and I wish... We could do one sermon on each. There's so much here. But I'm just going to do a flyover and a summation here. Four characteristics of the fairness, the beauty of this army. Verse 4. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women for their virgins. What is going on here? (laughs) You look at this and think, come on, is this really literal? I sure hope not, because if this is literal, then that means God's 144,000, his people have to be celibate males. And that any kind of sexual activity is basically just defiling. Is that what he means here? Or maybe some people actually take this and say, well, singleness must be a virtue for Christians. Now, you can be a Christian or you can be single and then you're really like a Navy SEAL kind of Christian. You're a special you know, class of Christian. Is that what's going on here? No. No, not at all. Paul actually calls both marriage and singleness a gift in 1 Corinthians 7. Now to be clear, each are a blessing in a very unique way. But neither is more holy than the other. And we're not commanded to do one over the other because it's more holy. And God Himself created sex. He even commands His people from the beginning to be fruitful and multiply, to spread image bearers across the globe. And so sex cannot be defiling. It's only defiling when we take it out of the context of marriage, like our culture is constantly doing and twisting it, or including it in worship, which is what John is battling so much in this culture. And so what is he saying here? He's saying the 144,000 God's people are pure. They're holy. They're unstained by the world. Now in an Old Testament context, this makes a lot of sense with the army because the army of God was supposed to be ritually pure to fight for God. You might remember some of this in the story with David and Bathsheba and Uriah. If you remember that story in 2 Samuel 11, David commits adultery with Bathsheba and then he's trying to cover it up and he calls Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, back from war and says he kind of whines and dines him and he says, go home, be with your wife, just enjoy this time. If you remember, he doesn't even go in. He stays on the step or the porch, whatever they had back then. And David says, what happened? Why didn't you do that? And Uriah essentially says, how could I do this? I'm a soldier. I can't defile myself in this way. And plus, my men are out there dying, which is what David should have been doing in the first place. These soldiers were meant to be pure. That was one of the way they honored the Lord in battle. And I think especially, this is speaking spiritually here. Of course, God's people are not to commit sexual immorality physically, but also spiritually. Giving themselves to Satan and the world and the lusts of this world. We find that's the case of Satan's people in the next section. Here, look down at verse 8 with me. This is the people of Satan. 14.8 Another angel, a second, followed saying, Fallen fallen is Babylon the great she who made all the nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality now that's speaking spiritually and physically giving themselves to idolatry but God's people won't abandon their husband they will trust in the one that made a covenant with them graciously made a covenant with them and at the end of revelation what do we see in revelation 21 The church is this beautiful adorned bride that comes down for the wedding supper of the Lamb. That's how it's all ending up. So God's people are pure. Second, God's people are obedient. Look at the middle of verse 4. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. You see, this army obeys. This army follows their general's order no matter what it costs them. They follow what Jesus said in Mark 8, 34. If anyone would come after Me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow Me. You see, there's an interesting contrast here with the last attribute. The purity attribute. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, look, My people aren't just defensive. They're not just guarding the good deposit. They're not just fending off the world and keeping themselves unstained by the world. My people are active. They're obedient. They're faithful in the sense that they conform to God's law. They do what is right. It's not just that they don't do what's wrong. They actively are being conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul picks up in Colossians chapter 3 when he calls us to this. Set your minds on things above, not on things on earth. You see the dual natures of that? Defend and act. For you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ appears, who is your life, then you also will appear with him in glory. That's exactly what we see in the scene, isn't it? So God's people are pure, God's people are obedient, and then third, God's people were redeemed. They are redeemed as first fruits. Look at the end of verse four. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the lamb this is incredible news because you might be tempted to think in the first two attributes well are these people just more pure than everyone else are they more holy are they more obedient that's why they're part of god's army no these people had to be redeemed just like everyone else they're fallen in adam they were not righteous inherently righteous they were dead in adam they could not redeem themselves They had to be redeemed from this wicked generation, from Adam and his family. this is the glorious good news that we have a Redeemer, don't we? That God did send His Son, Jesus Christ, the Lamb, to shed His own blood. And before He did that, He lived the life that we failed to live. Obediently living in our place and then dying in our place. Taking the wrath of God that we deserved. And raising from the dead So that we might have newness of life. So that we might go from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. So that we might live holy lives. That's part of what this means when it says first fruits. First fruits is a very Old Testament idea. You see it in Leviticus especially. It's picked up in the poetry, Isaiah, and some of the Psalms. But the idea of first fruits is that they're set apart for God. They were the first part of the crop. It's devoted to God, like the firstborn we see even in Exodus. And that means God owns them. Now the rest of the crop was seen as common, even called profane at times. And we'll see the rest of the harvest in the next couple weeks at the end of the chapter. But this harvest, this 144,000, the totality of God's people, they are set apart for a holy use. They are redeemed. So that they could be living sacrifices, as Paul says in Romans 12. So God's people are pure, obedient, they're redeemed for holiness, and last, God's people tell the truth. Look at verse 5. And in their mouth, no lie was found, for they are blameless. See, they no longer belong to Satan and to the dragon the father of lies. They no longer belong to Satan's people who use words as weapons to twist the truth, to deceive, to get what they want. God's people speak the truth in love like their God. God's people tell the truth about their own sinfulness and about who their God is and what He's come to do. Which I take it to mean that God's people are always speaking the Gospel. The Gospel is on their lips. That's who God is and what God's come to do. That's the story of what God has done. And in this way, they're blameless. There's no dishonesty in them. There's no twisting or deception in them. They're not perfect. I'm so thankful we got to talk about Noah this morning, right? Not perfect, but blameless. Repentantly and progressively trusting the Lord and preaching the Gospel, speaking the truth to the lost and dying world around Him and around us. Oh, brothers and sisters, don't you see how amazing this is? This is our finish line if we're in Christ. This means that not only will we stand in glory with Jesus one day, not only will we sing the song of the redeemed, but one day our struggle with sin will be done. We will be like our Lord. We will be holy and obedient and obedient and pure, and truthful. And we will be that way for all of eternity. This is our hope. This is what we look forward to. This is what we use when we're losing hope. We need motivation to keep on going. It's this vision that we desperately need. And John knows that. He says it again in 1 John chapter 3. Verse 2. Listen to this. He says, Beloved, we are God's children now. We are in Christ right now. But what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him because we shall see him as he is. That's our hope. And that's the hope we hold on to when Satan does his worst. Let me pray. Father, thank you for this passage, thank you for this vision. What an incredible blessing! It is to know when our world seems to constantly wage war against us, constantly twist the truth, and we have the same war raging in our hearts at times as we battle the flesh. What a great hope it is that we know we will stand in glory with You one day. Father, give us the grace of perseverance. Give us the joy that fills our hearts, that spills forth in praise so that we might sing, even as we're persecuted, even as we're struggling, we might sing the glories of your great work in us and in the world around us. We pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.